Welcome to Web3 Galaxy Brain. My name is Nicholas. Each week, I sit down with some of the brightest people building Web3 to talk about what they're working on right now. Today, I'm joined by Robin Schmidt, video creator and former head of video and content at The Defiant. In this episode, Robin and I talk about his love of cinema, 16mm film, firewire, and anamorphic lenses. Robin tells me how his team found their groove making irreverent explainers and analysis with their video about Curve. And we discuss how the Defiance video team scaled production to seven videos a week. Robin also sheds light on Based AF, his upcoming PFP collection, and his ambition to create the MTV of the metaverse. It was great talking with Robin about his experience building at the intersection of crypto and the creator economy. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Robin, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> welcome, welcome. I should give a little preface. I know I mentioned over DM, but for listeners, I'm calling in from Columbia for DevCon. Uh, yeah, I'm in a beautiful we'll location we'll outside yeah. of Bogota. DevCon starts next week, and I'm here for a little pre-event in the countryside, in the hills in the countryside, full of cows and horses and stray dogs. And it's actually beautiful. I've never been to South America before, and it's truly gorgeous. Have you ever been to a DevCon yourself? Uh, I've been around them from time to time. Well, I went to one in Berlin a few years back. But generally, it's it's been quite difficult for us to just travel and kind of get to places and still get the content done. Because the moment we leave the office, it gets a lot harder to just make stuff. And we were on schedule. Yeah, it didn't really happen. Yeah, so tell me, what was publishing schedule for you? I guess, have you officially left at this point, The Defiant? Yes, the I, I left The Defiant end of last week. So that was Friday. Was Congratulations on your tenure there. How long were you producing content at The Defiant? We started... July 2020, which feels like a, a lifetime ago. And you kind of have to remember that like that was suddenly had this validation moment. And so that, that was when we started. We were only doing one video a week. And if we couldn't make a video that week because we were being too ambitious or it didn't happen, we just didn't. The client wasn't actually paying us. I was actually at Harmony at that point and was trying to get a sort of footprint for Harmony in DeFi through making content because we, we just didn't really have one at that, at that moment in time. So that's what we did. And then when, when I went full-time with The Defiant, we, I was struggling to remember how many videos a week we were doing, but I think it was three, and then it became four, five, six, and then it was seven. So it was a lot of content. Being that's created. wild. That's um, wild. And was it um, like, I, I think people maybe were familiar with your more produced cinematic videos, as well as the kind of interview video one-on-one -on -one podcasts on YouTube. Was it one a week of the more highly produced ones or, or how did you think about it? Yeah, it's a good question. We always wanted to maintain a certain level of production value. It's not because that makes any difference to the content itself. It's more just like, what do I want to put out in the world and what's my kind of background and where do I come from and how do I kind of keep some connection to all the stuff that I'd learned how to do over the last 20 years, making commercials and making films and generally getting good at like making commercial content. And so there was always this idea like the minimum you can do is set up some lights and that became like how we did things and we shoot on nice cameras and we have nice lenses. But again, if, if the person in front of the camera can't speak and isn't very good at communicating, then it doesn't matter how many lights you have, it's still going to be garbage. So we initially, we would put a lot of work and effort into taking the crazy stories of DeFi and everything else and giving them the treatment that we felt they deserved that nobody else would bother to do because it was just way too difficult. 
and that was what we called the Defiant Weekly. And that was the template for that was set when we did the Curve video when Curve launched. I basically had this idea in my head that like this whole situation was bananas. So I was going to make the video use bananas. So like one shot, I have I've used the banana as a phone, and then I have bananas hitting me in the face. It was just a whole bunch of stuff that we did, and that that became that sort of became the template for it. It wasn't like I deliberately set out to say this is the tone of voice and this is what the Defiant's going to be. Because if you look at the Defiant and you look at Cami and look at what the Defiant was about, we'd be hard pressed to understand why on earth the guy's getting hit in the face with bananas. <laughs> but Camilla was always very supportive of that because she said the space is strange and we don't need another Bloomberg. We need media source that is completely unique and born from this space and that tells the stories kind of the way they feel and not necessarily the way we would traditionally cover them. So that's kind of what we tried to do. And that became the Define Weekly. And then the promise of that was you'll see something probably a little bit crazy. Now, it wasn't always possible to do that. Some weeks we would really push ourselves to try and find a way of getting into the story in a meaningful way. Honestly, it's this. Like, if you're going to make that much content, some of it, you just need it to have a creative peach to sink your teeth into. Mm. Otherwise, it just gets really hard to consistently come to the table to talk about the same things in the same way, in the same context, to the same audience again and again and again. I just don't have that muscle. I have a huge amount of respect for people that can, like Pomp, for instance, can talk about the same thing in a different way every day of the week, twice a day. I would just grow so bored. Like the bankers guys do it as well. I mean, they can talk about the same things and make them interesting and, and make the content and make it work. Again and again, I just, I just don't have that. I'm constantly in need of visual refreshment and idea refreshment. So a lot of what, what I was doing was just hunting for the quirky ideas, the, the odd ideas that nobody else would cover because they just weren't cool and they weren't going to generate lots of views. But those were all the things that for me were a bit more interesting. And so we had this strand called First Look, which went out on Wednesdays, where we just deliberately go and look out just for something that was bizarre or different or interesting. Uh, because so much of what happens in this space is just everyone copies everyone else. So you get the same basic structure, same basic idea, but now it's on Avalanche or it's on Solana. Like after a while, it becomes really hard to be enthusiastic about that because like, who cares? Yeah, I guess that's, I'm, I'm that's, much more. It's part of the nature yeah, of the, the, the open source that things are getting forked and repeated so many times that it becomes boring. But also, I think the bananas and and the sort of cinematic elements that you're introducing are humanizing of something that can be so esoteric and difficult to grapple with and unrelatable. But you also had a sort of a longstanding interest in cinema, right? Yeah, I mean, gosh, I started my career back in 2002 when I was shooting extreme sports films with very cheap consumer cameras, basically big bulbous thing, very slow, very expensive. But the, the goal was always to make things look more cinematic. So you put widescreen bars on them. You would do this thing called deinterlacing where you would strip out one of the, from the digital signal. And that would create the illusion of 25 frames per second because interlaced footage looks like 50 frames per second. And if anyone saw the Hobbit in the cinema, they would have kind of had this feeling that it felt cheap. And that's what, interlaced footage feels like it feels like television it feels cheap now television these days is all shot interlaced sorry it's shot progressive as they call it which looks like 25 frames per second cinematic traditionally yeah so films have always been shot on film negative 
at 24 frames per second. And 24 frames per second is very cinematic. It just has this slight kind of flicker to it. And that's what we associate with films. TV didn't do that because for all sorts of different reasons, the technical standards led to a certain place. So you could trick a digital camera signal into looking like it was 25 frames per second by stripping out one of the fields. So you do that. It was very processor intensive. And, but you know, the result you got, if you put widescreen bars, you did that. And then you added a bit of just basic color correction. You could get something that looked not like it was shot on a consumer camcorder. And so that was that we were just trying to hack the signal as best we could to make it look more like we wanted it to look. That was always the adventure. That was always the journey. And then as you graduate up through the ranks of small budget to bigger budget, you can afford better cameras and then you get to play with lenses. And then you can shoot on Super 16, which is like the best format in the world, bar none. I'm sorry. It just is. What do you love about and it so much? What makes it so uh, enigmatic? So many things. Okay, so the first part is, is it's film. Like if, if anyone's shot on film, they know. They know this thing. Like there is something magical that happens when you process light through a lens onto celluloid. Something magical happens. And it's really hard to explain to people what that is until they've shot something for themselves, had it processed, and then watch it back on a computer. And you just see all these imperfections and there's weird things that the light does and the weird way that the chemicals from frame to frame don't quite react the same way. It's utterly incredible. Now, Super 35 is also an amazing format, but the cameras are bigger. The negative is more expensive. So Super 16 was just this real sweet spot where it was within reach and it had all this lusciousness of film. The lenses were cheaper, you know, with a smaller frame size, which is, you know, the 16 millimeter frame size is sort of a little bit smaller than APS-C, if you're familiar with shooting on a DSLR. APS-C is, is that full frame DSLR? No, that's the next one down. So that's the cheap version. So APS-C is like the kind of- 1.66 times or something like yeah, that? Yeah, okay. exactly. Mm -hmm. So with, with 16 mil film, you, you've got a smaller thing, but like, you can shoot on Zeiss lenses and, and also the cameras themselves. They're just like, they're just these magical boxes and they're mechanical. And then, you know, you have to put a neg into a magazine in a blackout tent for obvious reasons. And that takes time. And then like you have this stack of rolls of film, like sitting there and you watch it slowly go down and you know that they cost like real money. It's like 135 bucks per film roll. So that gives you basically 12 minutes of footage is 135 bucks. Wow. And then like you hear the, the camera and it's going and you just know that that's money. It's just it's <laughs> like literally is the money princess. You just hear the money just going. Through. So what happens is everybody on set goes quiet. When you're shooting digital, you just spray and pray and you don't give a shit. Right, but like right. on, shooting on film, you have to be so disciplined because you know that every single time that you could have called cut and you didn't, you've just pissed like 20 bucks up the wall. It's there's something so focusing about that. It's awesome. Shades of uh, paying gas for transactions a little bit too. Not quite. Yeah, same, a little bit. Yeah, little bit. Mm. it really is. And so now we have DSLRs and amazing lenses and amazing digital cameras that do an incredible job of taking all of that away and putting incredible tools in the hands of people who are doing spectacular things to them who would never have had access to that in the first place. But like when I was doing it, we had to really work our way up through like these different tiers, like where you were deemed good enough to get a budget of like 25 grand. 
and that would get you like maybe a day shoot with film like shooting on 35 wow if you, wow. If you could shoot on 35 for 25k i mean that was so it's done really well 2002 was before mini dv and like firewire imac I'm oh you're speaking my language no but that was exactly that era so okay. when i started editing it was mac os 9 final cut pro 1 and firewire so firewire love it you know, <laughs> what <DV> signals. <laughs> um, yeah i mean and that's where the creator economy started that kind of ethos of having cheap digital tools that you could still compete with in some way or shape and learn to do things that was before youtube obviously that was kind of how it all began i mean it was before um i I remember the first uh computer i ever owned of my own was an emac the educational mac which was the first one that shipped with os 10 you actually had the option os 9 or os 10 i opted for 10 because i was a child (laughs) what did i know and it was in the era before Steve Jobs had and company had come up with iPod and post PC devices and were still focusing on like making the world into video creators, actually, with Firewire and OS 9, OS 10 and iMovie and this kind of stuff, Final Cut. I often think that like Evan Spiegel and Snapchat kind of delivered the ultimate version of that Jobsian vision from the early 2000s by compressing a lot of the challenge and just friction of non-linear editing in something like iMovie into something like purely linear where the compositional frame is building the story format that Snapchat created kind of gives you a really simplified stripped down version of what iMovie at that era was trying to do and also no need for <laughs> mini DV and, and importing your videos at 1x <laughs> yeah right. uh, that was brutal it's like that. Uh, well that, that was the thing right you would shoot on tape and like Man, I went back to my old production company and we had all the tapes in a drawer. I was like, what? Because, you know, each tape is probably two bucks. And then there was just this, like, just the cost of all of that. And then the wastage, like, once you started shooting on memory cards, all of that went away. Yeah. And then you had a whole different problem, which is like, okay, now where are we going to store the media? How are we going to do digital archiving? All these kind of things. That was a problem. But, yeah, the other problem with DV cameras is they would drop time code. So basically, like the worst thing in the world was a time code break on a tape. The best thing that would ever happen is you would start recording at the beginning and it would go from zero all the way to 60, the other 60 minute tape, and there'd be no break in the time code. But what generally happened was if you turn the camera off, for some reason, the camera would then decide to start the time code back at zero. And that was a huge problem because the tape would be given a, a number, like real one, real two, real three. And then what normally would happen is like within that reel, you have X amount of time code. And then you know that if I put real one in and I go to this specific time code on that tape, then the shot I want will be there. So people will go through and they would say, right, from this second to this second, there's a shot that's really good. And we're going to log that, but then we're going to ignore the rest of it because media storage was a problem. You can't just ingest the whole tape, but then you have the time code break. So you have two instances on that tape where you have, second two or minute two to minute five that happens twice on the same tape that's a real problem computer can't doesn't have a clue what to do with that so you would end up ingesting the wrong bit of the tape so i mean man like just just a complete but two things first off it's interesting because it's tape but it's not film right it's sort of magnetically encoded digital data rather than actually exposing the film Although it is a kind of tape, it is actually digital. But the Super 16 cameras that you were shooting on, why were you choosing to use those instead of because of their silky smooth actual film quality or access? Well, I mean, I mean, I wish I could have owned one. I mean, I shot quite a few projects on it. I think the thing that really sold it to me was seeing, seeing surfing 
on Super 16. You couldn't take a Super 35 mil camera into the ocean, but like a Super 16 one, you could. They sort of look like like a gun handle, right? Yeah, basically. But like once you see surfing in slow motion on film, man, just the way the water reacts, it doesn't look the same on digital. You know, even as good as digital has got, it still doesn't look the same. There's just, I don't know, there's just something about it. And it, this is like real nerd stuff. This is, <laughs> you know, when, when Christopher Nolan laments the death of film, like, yeah, he knows why. And there's like this never decreasing band of people that, that love this stuff. I always joke that we should maybe just do an episode for YouTube where we try and shoot. Yeah, I was about film. to ask when the Defiant film version, I would look amazing. Well, I don't, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the Defiant, but like, yeah, I, I because who cares whether it looks amazing or not? Like we can make stuff look amazing with digital cameras and the lenses that we have now. And we can, even shooting anamorphic now is relatively cost effective. You can get some cheap anamorphic lenses and make that look pretty decent because shooting anamorphic is a bit of a pain in the butt. And anamorphic lenses are very expensive normally, but you can get some cheap versions and get some nice looking stuff for that. Do you need me to explain what anamorphic is? Uh, widescreen, right? <laughs> Wide lenses. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it all comes down to the fact that like 35 mil film is a certain shape, and you can't really change that. Right. So what they did instead was because they knew that the screens that were going to be projecting on were much wider than the frame they were actually shooting on. They built these lenses called anamorphic lenses, which squeeze the image so you can fit a much wider image onto the same size of film. And the, the end result of that is it does some really weird things to the bokeh, which is the out-of-focus area in an image, but it also mm-hmm. does some really weird things to faces as well. Um, so you get these kind of strange, very specific artifacts that you only get in film. And like most of us don't really notice them, but for instance, um, if you see a, like fairy lights and they're out-of-focus in the distance, the fairy light, the image will look stretched vertically. It will look like an oval rather than a circle, which it would be if you were using spherical lenses. Right. And then you get these flares, like the classic example is J.J. Abrams' version of Star Trek. He was just, there's this like blue streaks across the whole thing the whole time. But, you know, even if you look at like Raids of the Lost Ark, there's a lot of torches in that film. And when the torch sort of swings past the camera, you get this big flare and it's this big streak that pings out left and right. And that tells your brain that this is cinema. And that's yeah, what anamorphic lenses give you. Mm, it but it, it you accentuates know, the wideness of the shot to have all yeah, the, it, the bokeh. But in, it's, not even, it's not even the wideness. Like when, when you compose for anamorphic and compose for widescreen like that, that this 2.35 to 1 frame, your brain has to be completely rewired for thinking about composition. Because you get really accustomed to like, well, a 35 mil gives you this, or a 50 mil gives you this, and a 11 mil gives you this. But like when you switch to anamorphic they you have to completely reprogram your brain to understand the composition and how a close-up isn't really a close-up anymore because there's so much negative space right on the stuff. other side of the frame. More stuff in your shot <laughs> or, or less stuff or a close-up can be a very different thing like you know when i think of a close-up on a spherical lens it's kind of usually from like just below the chin to just above the head but like on an anamorphic lens it's that's it's it's not that at all but it still feels like a close-up in the more traditional spherical sense. So you know, there's a lot of film language and photography language that the cinematic lenses and, and, and tools that we have can give you. But I think most YouTube creators are not thinking about that at all. But I do. Do you, I do you think it. the it's audience, all, you know, does it come through to the audience? Is it, what was your experience of the I audience don't feeling? No. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think it really matters because I don't need the audience to decode the way I shot things. At the end of the day, when we try stuff out, 
we will generally do it for a reason. And a lot of the time that's just because we want to try it out. When we shot in the Arctic, for instance, we did everything widescreen, but those widescreen bars are not, not, it's not because it was anamorphic. It was because we just put widescreen bars on it, but we were in the Arctic. So it made sense to make it feel more mm. dramatic and that kind of thing. Um, I, think, I think that does then, come through to the audience because even if they don't know the specific techniques you're using, the, the general aura of, like with anything, the care that's put into the, the construction of the work is comes through to the audience yeah, even if they're not educated. Well, I mean, you'd, you'd have so. The, the lens you shoot on has a specific effect that you're trying to achieve with it. And, and lighting plays into that as well. Like how you light something has a huge effect on the emotion that comes out of it. Every bit as much as the piece of music you use. So, you know, depending... You know, if you light from below, it tends to make feel things feel a little demonic. And if you light from above, it tends to make it feel more like a prison setting. I think I'm trying to remember the last thing we shot fully on anamorphic. I think it was the, the, the like I did a 90 minute documentary on NFTs called the greatest NFT film ever made. And that was totally shot on anamorphics. And you'll see right at the beginning, I deliberately shine my phone's torch into the camera to create the flare. And I use that as a transition to get out into a, a different scene. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, definitely the best filmed work related to crypto that I've seen. Uh, and, and to me, it really does come through you talking about lighting. And I think that's one of the most striking things, even when you just see a thumbnail or, or just a tiny clip of the work you did at Defiant is, uh, is the lighting is really just a level beyond, frankly, most YouTube, but definitely within crypto, number one in my mind. So congratulations on well, what, that. Yeah. Well, what you, what you don't realize is that there's some really good YouTubers out there and specifically some really good cinematic youtubers who really care about this stuff it's just that none of them are in crypto mm -hmm. so there's like there's are there any there's channels you admire or, any any creators you like yeah there's one who's just incredible called josh yo his channel is make art now and he was a big inspiration for when i was trying to put my spin on the defiant because like he'd just go out of his way to do the most insane things he could because that was just what he wanted to do uh he doesn't post that regularly but he was just kind of pushing himself really out of his comfort zone to make things have a story or have something weird about them and go way beyond what the story required there was a lot of people who were following the peter mckinnon playbook of camera and photo blog and talking about specific pieces of tech that they used and ronins and all these other things and there were just a ton of people doing very similar content and then there's josh who just we used to be an actor and He's just got a very different vibe on things and he's massively talented and it just stands out because it's not just about a beautiful image, which is, to be honest, quite easy to, to get these days. But his storytelling and the way he put himself in the story and had it in you know, secondary characters, that was really cool. I'm curious, what kind of television do you watch or what kind of films are you enjoying lately? That's a really good question. It's funny because I've done, throughout my career, I've literally done everything. I've done music videos been signed to production companies i've done commercials i've shot i've directed a feature film and i've done reality tv as well one of the last things i did before leaving the uk was a show called the indestructibles which was basically like top gear on a budget with extreme sports okay building 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 crazy stuff and blowing things up and generally just being idiots and like i used to just watch i used to try and watch a film every single day which is nuts now when I think about it. And some, somewhere after 24 happened, like I slowly started devouring more and more television. So I went through Lost and 
Breaking Bad and The Wire. And then suddenly I was like, oh, I'm only watching TV. So now I, I hunt relentlessly for great TV. And it's out there. There's not a lot of it, but there it, it definitely is out there. And generally, probably the best stuff that I, I really enjoy is, is usually on HBO. And the two shows I've enjoyed the most, well, three probably, are Euphoria, Succession, and Dave. Three shows which have nothing in common with each other, but they're just spectacularly well-made. Very different examples of the same commitment to craft. So Euphoria so is kind of beautiful. I haven't seen Dave. What's Dave? So Dave is Lil Dicky. He's a oh, yeah, com- okay. comedian, comedian rapper, and they gave him a TV show. And it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. It is so funny. Like the first season, he's kind of finding his feet a little bit in the show. But the second season, they really let him loose to go and pursue the weird, wild world of Lil Dicky. And it's just genius. I absolutely loved it. Very cool. Have you seen um, How To with John Wilson? I think it's also HBO. No, I haven't. You, you'll, I think you I'm, would enjoy that. Check that out. He's a, a documentarian in New York who does very left of, <laughs> very, very oddball documentaries. Yeah, well, that's, that sounds exactly my jam. I mean, it's not like I necessarily always seek out the weird stuff. I mean, I mean, for better or worse, I really enjoyed the Hawkeye um, Marvel series okay i haven't seen uh, I just that. thought it was it was just just really sweet and really beautifully well done well acted thought it was great and I, i'll watch stuff like, like i watched the 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 fuji eco challenge on amazon okay. which was just epic um because i'm i'm training for an ultra marathon at the moment so it was kind of like just putting your body through pain and there's a great show on uh, apple called bad sisters it's an irish drama kind of comedy drama that I'm watching at the moment that's really, really good. Mm, I'll have to check um, that out. Oh, yeah. What was... There was um, Severance on Apple. God, yeah. that was good as well. Okay. I, really, I watched only really good show. one episode. People people seem to love that show. Um, yeah, it's great. Do you watch anything um, non-English language? Anything comes to mind that's been influential to you from from other parts of the world? I used to watch a lot. So there was this this period when there was a lot of Mexican filmmakers that that, that sprang up. So... Del Toro, uh, Inaritu, and there was this film called Amores Peros, which is um, Love is a Bitch. And like all of those filmmakers ended up having huge careers in Hollywood. But like there was this, this period of just Spanish language cinema that was just really epic. And all those Mexican filmmakers were just doing just the most incredible work. So I watched a lot of that. I went to school in France for a year, so I used to watch a fair bit of French cinema. But it's kind of just reduced down now. So I'm like, there's just so much content to consume. And um, yeah, I try to keep up with all of it. I try to keep up with all of it, but I, but I can't. And I have to kind of focus down on what we're doing now and try to make that as good as possible. Otherwise, you just kind of end up just watching stuff all the time. Totally. So this is a good point to ask. So what is next for you? What are I know you're working on more than one project. So what are you doing immediately first? I'm actually not. I'm working on one project. Just one? Is, I thought multiple. Yeah, okay. it's uh, no. Well, it's it's called Based AF, and it's basically where the Define is going as a brand, and where I wanted to go as a brand. I think we're going in, in different directions. That's nobody's fault. I mean, the Define is. I, I love it, and I had the best time working there. And the kind of ideas that I wanted to explore were more around NFTs, of what's being created, and also when you think about who's going to inherit the metaverse and who's going to be 
the prime user of it. Like the people who are really going to use the metaverse are like eight years old. How is sticking the knife into Zuckerberg relevant in any way, shape or form? So I'm fortunate I have kids who are eight and 10. So I, I use them as my sounding board for, for stuff. Like, would you laugh at this? Is this funny? And that keeps it very real because they play Roblox and they play Minecraft. And it just, it just shows you like what they're thinking about, how they view the world. They don't give a crap about any of this stuff. They love VR. Sure, they, they've never had a Facebook Man. account and they might never. Exactly. Uh, then I want to come back to Minecraft and, and Roblox, but I wanted to ask you first, just what, when you think metaverse, when you say metaverse, what does it mean to you? People ask me this and I have no good answer. <laughs> and that's kind of the problem because I don't think anybody has a good answer. I think a lot of people think they know that it's sort of like a game or something. I don't think anyone has a good answer yet. And that's both an opportunity and a threat because if you're trying to plant your flag in a, a landscape where there's no good answer for any of this stuff, like how is anyone going to ever going to find you? But at the same time, you can also be part of defining what that is. I mean, we can talk about like persistent 3D environments, social presence and all that stuff, but it's like in no way, shape or form is it really crystallized yet. I kind of like that. I like the fact that it's emergent and it could be a bunch of different things and it might be VR, it might be AR, but ultimately it's probably just going to be like this secondary layer that sits on top of things and how we travel into that and out of it can be a number of different ways. But what you're looking for is just an upswell of ideas and creativity and a willingness to go and explore that, that territory and try and figure out how we do it. And the people that do that early, because we are early, let's be honest, will be remembered by probably nobody. Let's be honest. We've done a lot of thinking recently about why we keep going back to 1981. Like in our own heads, we keep looking back to 1981 and then like, probably 1991 as well, but it's about MTV. So what happened in 1981, MTV was launched. Suddenly you had music videos on a TV channel. And then that gave birth to Cribs and it gave birth to Jackass and all these reality formats and weird things that now like YouTubers just use as, as the platform for everything that they make. But like that all came from MTV and you suddenly realize just how important it was. So in my head, I'm like, well, what is the MTV of the metaverse? How do we create a place in which people can like see just the wildest, weirdest stuff and it doesn't matter? And actually, that's the reason you would go there. And you think that's YouTube. But I think, like, what is the, there's going to be a thing beyond YouTube somewhere in the metaverse. And, I, and I'm really excited about figuring out where that is and what that could be and hopefully playing a part in making that grow. So you asked me what I'm doing next. Yeah, uh, so, so, but just for you, metaverse is primarily, because there's some people who would say like Ethereum is the closest thing we have to a metaverse, which is to say like a fully interoperable computer, like, or, or maybe the web or the internet are closer to like what a pure original definition of a metaverse was, it, rather than this new version of the term metaverse where it's kind of used to describe 3D social platforms. Uh, that often are not yeah. actually interoperable with anything outside of themselves. Yeah. So I think we can talk about features of a metaverse rather than what the metaverse is. And like Tony Parisi's done a pretty good job of summing that up. Matthew Ball, obviously, as well. And it, like interoperability, the social component, which is not there for most of that stuff. So like we have to figure out how to make that stuff fun and make it work. But there's no doubt, like you see how much money is being poured into the metaverse. It's like, if you really want to define what the metaverse is, 
it's an epic piece of IP that nobody owns. And in that case, you might as well just go and fly your flag and, and start doing stuff. And that, that was kind of where we came to it from. I mentioned, like, I feel like it's a really underserved or undervalued area for journalism or for content creation because I don't think anyone quite knows what bit of it to attack except Zuckerberg. So every time Horizon Worlds, there's a bit of negative publicity, they just leap on it because they want to hate on him. But I have to say, I'm kind of slowly becoming Team Zuck, not Team Facebook, but Team Zuck. Just in terms of like how I hear him talk about it, I listen to that Rogan podcast, and like there's a lot of stuff that you like, mm, really. But like when he talks about his experiences of using virtual reality and how physical it is, and him training MMA, like there's a lot of stuff like, yeah, that's exactly how it is for me. So I think the thing that troubles me is that there's a vision of the metaverse that feels like the end of Wally. When you've got all these fat humans sitting in kind of chairs with wires plugged into them going, like just zooming around, being fed everything. But I think it's, it's kind of like this weird snow crashy thing where you just, you're jacked in and like, that's kind of how we perceive everything. But for me, I don't think it is that. I think there's a very physical kind of almost parallel version of things. And so when we're, we're coming up with ideas for films around the metaverse, very much trying to make them physical and humane and human, obviously, to try and tease out the ideas that will preoccupy us when we think about the metaverse, but not do them in a way that's massively off-putting because, oh, I don't do VR or I don't do this. But like, try and find the angle in that's like, oh, man, okay, so you're, you're doing this, but you're adding this bit on it to it too. Okay, that, that makes sense. Well, then maybe the metaverse is something I can look at. So it's not our job to rebrand it, but it's definitely our job to be a different on-ramp to understanding it than we get at the moment. So your goal is to make experiences, media of some kind for 3D social spaces or to create the space itself? Oh, that sounds very noble. I think me saying and the MTV of the metaverse really neatly sums it up, which is we want to be an entertainment channel in which you'll find a variety of different things. And the thing, instead of it being music, is the metaverse. And that's so broad, I appreciate, but like really, there's quite a few different pieces to this and some of them are Web3 and some of it's about kind of disrupting the YouTube model or finding a different model. But fundamentally, it's like we will be a YouTube channel that has short content and live streams and all this other stuff. And it will just be obsessed with the metaverse, but it will be obsessed with trying to be like Mr. Beast. And it's the easy example to say, like Mr. Beast, but if you think about the way he's obsessed over winning the YouTube game, winning the algorithm game, we just have to come up with great stories, great concepts, and then trust that the way we tell them is going to hook an audience to keep coming back for more. And then through the course of that, they'll get exposed to why we're obsessed about the metaverse. Because like, if we stand up on a soapbox and say, yeah, but man, the, the metaverse has to be open. It has to be this. Like, nobody's going to care. But if they see it and they experience it with you and then they kind of get, you know, an idea of why that might be a good thing without you preaching at them, then I think we can get somewhere. And then we can start to kind of explore some really funky ideas about what to do with kind of big audiences and, and shaping the future of the Internet. So you'll be creating content in uh, metaverse experiences uh, or creating your own experiences on top of other platforms or protocols, whatever it might be that allow you to have these 3d social experiences and then publishing 
edited recordings of those to YouTube in order to draw people into the kind of community that you're building? Yeah, probably something like that. They won't always work as well. So some, if, we, if you think about the YouTube schedule, six videos a week we were doing at the time. There's no way we can do that. No. Um, as we expand the team, we can we can start to put out short form content or, for instance, a React channel because there's a lot of crap that comes out in the metaverse and someone needs to call it out. But at the same time, probably fortnightly for the big tentpole pieces. And they really are big tentpole pieces. They're like the most outrageous things we can think of because that's the way this thing, this is the way the game is played at the moment. It's, you have to respect that and understand that that is the field you're playing in. But alongside that, some other content that will be shorter in, in nature and you know, acts effectively like a sidebar. So if we, we skate over the fact that we're using, for instance, the new Quest headset, we might do a sidebar where we unbox it, for instance, or we might do a sidebar where we try and find like, you know, whether to compare playing Bone Lab on it to the old Quest 2, something like that. So there, mm-hmm. there's other content that we can tease out, but it's really hard to build in quote-unquote metaverses at the moment. They're all pretty clunky. And I think they know that. Compare the user experience of like building an Instagram story. It's so intuitive now and it's so simple you try building an experience in, in a metaverse and it's like, yeah, it doesn't really work. And that's kind of what Matthew Ball says. There is no metaverse. There is only the metaverse. And then these worlds like CryptoVoxels or Decentraland or Wild World, they're instances in the metaverse. And I guess that's just semantics. That's however you want to think about it. But we kind of have to think of the metaverse as the internet. We don't say this is an internet <laughs> when we're talking about a web page. We don't say that. Right. And that's the same for the metaverse, probably. But again, like, who knows? Who knows what any of this stuff is? What I do know is that the true birth of metaverse was like 30 years ago, and it was military. It was this thing called SimNet. It was basically a way of training U.S. soldiers in battlefield operations in a way that they could repeat over and over and take the lessons from and then apply them to the Gulf War, not, which is wild. Not unlike the internet. Okay, yeah. so for you, the we're in this inchoate moment. It's unclear exactly what the metaverse will be, what it will mean, but it does mean sort of the big tent of everything that is interested in being connected to the metaverse, which is to say social, 3D, spatial, internet-connected experiences, whether or not they make a point of being particularly interoperable with each other. Currently, you can bridge the gap sort of on your local machines and create a content channel that is encompassing of all these different types of experience that are branding themselves as metaverse in order to discover what exactly the metaverse is going to be. Yeah, something like that. I mean, you you talked about interoperability there and like, it's very clear that like that will be sold pretty quickly. There's so much energy. You think so? You don't think Facebook is going to try to keep a moat around whatever horizons or social experiences? I I mean, right now, Decentraland and CryptoVoxels and Sandbox don't work at all together. No, no, not at all. But there's, I think it's Adobe, NVIDIA, Unreal, Unity. They're all working together to figure this stuff out. And it's happening pretty fast. It's like this USD universal scene description format. It's not like any asset can appear in any world. There needs to be a kind of location-specific thing where like, if you're playing a, like a World War II simulation, a noun or a board ape that has no place in that world. So, okay, don't put them there. But in terms of the, the portability of formats, like it's going to be sold pretty quickly. 
Uh, there's just really, I, you know, I'm not. Of, I'm not sure. I believe you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure oh, everyone's no. going to try and create an account lock-in system like the App Store and iCloud and Apple ID accounts or Facebook accounts. Or... Oh, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't get that feeling. Like, I, like, well, maybe I'm being naive. I just don't think Facebook has the the clout in this particular space that we all think it does because it doesn't own. I mean, they make the best headsets, more or less, or the most accessible quality headsets. But that's not, that's not the full picture of the metaverse. Let's be honest. No, but um, if you have to, I mean, they, they, you no longer need a Facebook account to use Oculus, but you do need a meta account, which is essentially a Facebook account by another name. It's essentially a Facebook account, yeah. So, and like, you know, I'm generally on my Oculus. I mean, I used to be on it like an hour and a half a day, like just spending time training my eyeballs to understand VR Beat, space. Beat Saber and, or um, VR chat? Oh, Pistol Whip. Pistol Whip. Pistol Whip is my game of choice. But because I can pick it up and play it and then stop playing and I'm not sucked in for like the next hour. It's like one of those things where like, okay, play a three-minute song on Deadeye and try and be like top of the leaderboard. Like I'm quite, I'm not like one of the, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good player on Pistol Whip. Like globally, probably like top 10. <laughs> so I have like a... Have you ever seen this channel Sirmore on YouTube? S-Y-R-M-O-R? person does um interviews in vr chat these like really in-depth personal uh, often about like ptsd or bullying at school or different subjects have you seen that oh that's awesome yeah there's a feature film called i want to say it's we fell in love in vr chat it's it's, but it's basically it's a documentary about people who fell in love in vr chat and got married or form relationships wild which is i mean it feels wild but like i remember world of warcraft 90s no, no, it's from the early 90s. Like, there was a film called Lawnmower Man with Pierce Brosnan in it. And, like, that was the era when VR had this sudden explosion. And we thought we were going to all be, like, having sex in VR with cyber dildonics and this kind of thing. <laughs> it was just like, what? And then it died. But, like, VR chat feels exactly like that. Those clunky and weird and, like, just kind of strange. And, like, anything goes. So it's not like, it doesn't feel new in any way. It's just like, oh, that's cool. That's fun. Well, I think the one thing that feels new about VRChat is that it lets you import any character with great difficulty and doesn't seem to respect any IP rights, which is different to the Facebook. As much as memes and stuff have, and Google Image Search and YouTube have sort of liberated people about using, I remember in school, they used to not let you use images unless they were Creative Commons images in a PowerPoint. But nowadays, nowadays anything goes, but at the same time for 3D models. Except that it doesn't. It doesn't doesn't. if you're going to sell it, but you can't do it in Roblox maybe, but in VRChat, you can have like, uh, I don't know, Marge Simpson talking to a hot dog, talking to a big lamp post or whatever. There's, it has that kind of crazy feel that feels like web one or something pre sanitized social media. Yeah, totally. That is definitely what it feels like where you got, it's like the geo cities moment, isn't it? Where it's just like, yeah, a web page can be whatever you want it to be. And no one really knows. It's like, try stuff, but it is social, which is different, which is cool. Yes, it is social. And I, I mentioned bone lab before, but bone lab allows you to do the same thing. It's like you can use your own avatar to play the game. Bone labs. It's, it's quite hard work if you're not used to vr the manipulation engine how you manipulate objects and stuff can be a bit clunky and a bit weird but like the ability to import your own avatar and play as it it's pretty wild you have this little string on your wrist you pull it out and you can change character and each character has a different way of going through the level so you can you decide how you're going to play the game 
I've watched videos, but I haven't tried it. I'm going to have to give it a shot. I want to open this up to questions if people have questions they'd like to ask you. So if you do, please uh, request. In the meantime, so what is the name of the new project? What's it called? So it's called Based AF. We are Based AF. Launching okay. a, yeah, we're launching a PFP project. We've had to redesign the timeline because basically what we're trying to do is too ambitious. We are too ambitious, obviously. So we're probably going to be releasing the PFP around the end of November now. It was hopefully going to be the, the beginning of November, but yeah, we just need a bit more time. And then we'll be doing a special at the end of the year, which I will reveal details about at a later date. But I've already given a clue away <laughs> in this Twitter spaces. So go back and watch the whole thing, y'all. And, <laughs> and then next year we get into full production. At the moment, we're just crewing up and putting a team together. So if there are any Unity developers out there, hit us up because that seems like that is what we need more than anything else at the moment. And it turns out that Unity developers are like Solidity developers. They are unicorns. They're out there somewhere, but you can't find them. So, um, yeah, the most we're, dangerous we're game for... of all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, so the, the PFP like project will essentially fund your development team, your studio, to build out this MTV of the metaverse experiments. Is that right? So we did do a VC raise. We can't announce who's in that at the moment because we're not fully closed, but um, we did raise what we needed to raise. And that has given us X amount of runway. And the PFP project will give us the balance of that. I don't know if you've noticed, but like the market isn't great right yeah, now. Yeah, it's not, not so, the best. <laughs> so we set, we set a conservative target and deliberately forced ourselves into kind of thinking lean. But I mean, at the same time, like the, the marketplace that we're launching into and the way that we want to launch into it, we can't be thinking like 100,000 subscribers in 12 months is a good result. It just won't be. We have to be thinking like a million subscribers in 12 months is a good result. It's the, it's the minimum that we should be shooting for. And there's lots of different reasons why you get to that number and why that is a, is a valid number. But primarily, it's just a stretch target that looks kind of sexy. So why not? And how do um, the PFPs tie into the narrative of the, the Unity work you'll be building? Well, that's a perfect experience, a uh, perfect question to us because... A lot of the, the metaverse spaces that we've been building on specifically in the last couple of months are built on Unity. And Unity's Unreal has been grabbing all the headlines because of its ray tracing and its real-time lighting with Lumen, the incredible way it handles meshes and this kind of thing. But what that gives you is an incredible cinematic result in a local station for web-based metaverse experiences. Obviously, we look at improbable and the other side, that's incredible insane level of kind of having 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 people simultaneously. It's like the mind just cannot comprehend how they're doing that. But if you look thinking about something like Monoverse, for instance, it's built on Unity. You have to think quite compact. For getting it into people's hands, it's, it's, you're saying it's better. Yeah, <laughs> and when you think about the friction points, like I love Somnium, for instance, but we still have to download the Somnium client. You can only do it on a PC and there's a certain amount of friction involved in that. For us, we wanted to have an experience where, A, you can access it through a web browser. So important. And B, anyone can build on the land without having to buy land. Because I think right now, in the space that we're in, like just rent-seeking, just selling land and the, the weird hierarchies that pop up around like where your land is and the value of that land, everything else, it just kind of gets in the way. So that's why I bring up Monoverse, but like, Anyone could build in Monoverse. You don't need to buy the land. It's Unity. So there is some friction there in terms of building out your own thing, but you can just get hands-on and start creating something that you want to 
show to people or share with people and we kind of like that so so the um, pfps will allow people to, uh, to, to build in the space no of course not <laughs> <laughs> of course not no people have asked us why do a pfp like isn't that played out like we we looked at it and no, i love and pfps like, nah, it's not played out <laughs> pfps have got so much more to give they're great um but there's two reasons first of all we're in the business of attention right so for us to be a success we need to garner a lot of attention and we need to do that through a few different ways. One of which is creating a great concept and making a very entertaining video. Fortunately, YouTube is now evolving away from just a guy shouts at you for 10 minutes and it's so fast that you can't look away to more human storytelling. Casey Neistat started vlogging again, which is a great sign that the YouTube kind of paradigm is shifting more into our realm of expertise, which is great. I'm very happy about that. So that's one part of it. But then the second part of it is like the audience. Like the audience is everything. And I think where the creative economy has gone has become a little bit concerning and just in terms of like grow really big to like 10 million subscribers and then sell stuff. So sell merch, sell courses, just sell stuff. And like the audience, the people that are doing the sharing, the liking, subscribing, kind of just are this piggy bank for creators and i find that somewhat problematic so what we're trying to do is figure out a way to even out the balance of it and it's like i don't have the all the answers I'm trying to figure out this stuff at the moment but what i have realized is that nft communities pfp communities in general are the craziest motherfuckers on the planet and they will jump into the pit with you and try this stuff out if you are leading the charge in a way that they can relate to so that's one of the wonderful thing about being a creator is that you get to have that relationship with an audience. And so that's part one. Part two is there's a lot of cool stuff that happens in the metaverse and no one shows up. So we had to bake in a way for us to, you know, when we do stuff that we had a crew that would turn up um, because otherwise what's the point? So it's not like every single film that we ever do will have the ability to plug in the audience, but wherever possible, we will make the base heads because that's what they're called integral to that story in a way that can only be accessed if you have the pfp there's a bunch of stuff that i can't even talk about because legally i would get into trouble if i did and i will only reveal that once we've done the sale because again like i just can't talk about it i would get into so much trouble if i did but it, even just me saying that you can kind of see where i might be going with it but there's just a different version of the creator economy that has this i call it the third pillar so you think about the creator economy is build an audience, then monetize that audience. That's the model and lots of different ways to monetize that audience. We think there's a third pillar, which we call share the spoils, build an audience, monetize the audience, and then you share the spoils in some way. And the web three version of that has always tended towards something that is driven by markets. So add a token, drop another entity. And then it's like, okay, great. So how do you do that share the spoils thing without dropping an NFT and without just adding a shit coin to what you're doing? And that's a really big challenge, but it's also the one that ultimately is the most sustainable. And like, fortunately, you know, with what we do, there is a way to do that and to do it safely and to do it correctly and to track the right kind of data to enable the right kind of rewards to go to people for the things that they have done. So those tools are sort of starting to emerge, but the, the wonderful thing is, as an emergent new creator channel, we can bake that in from the start. Whereas I think it'd be quite difficult for 
like a THC or or an Emma Chamberlain or even a Casey Nice that pivot to that model because it just wouldn't make any sense. So that's kind of one of the advantages that we have doing Very what cool. we're doing. That's where the base heads come in. They're like so important, but they represent our audience and our audience will be a big part of what we do. So my question is uh, the Unity spaces that you're making are going to be used like film production stage essentially or something that your community members can also come in and, and visit oh yeah totally we, there has to be so the, the one of the reasons we're doing it at monoverse is that we can we could just drop a link and people can go and follow along or do what we did in that space and it's not like we're going to be bound to monoverse i think the idea for us is to explore all sorts of different versions or visions of the metaverse and figure out a way to to do something cool there i mean we can pretty clear that the other side is going to be a place where a lot will be possible. And we're kind of thinking already about how we would do something there. Um, but the, the fact that it's Unity is just simply because those are the platforms that we're, we're using at the moment. But Unreal Engine and Motion Capture will be a big part of what we do as well. And so these game engines that are kind of powering these 3D experiences are things that we need to get really good at. When you say MTV, you're really interested in producing essentially media across whatever metaverse platform makes sense, but creating experiences that are attractive enough to people that they actually show up and participate. Yeah, basically. So it, think of it like the UFC. So the UFC is a show and it goes to different stadiums around the world. And, you know, you get the soap opera of the show, but essentially it's an octagon and you know what the show is. That's basically what we are. So imagine that different metaverse implementations are the different stadia around the world, the UFC remains constant. So the show will be constant. It'll just be witnessed in different places, something like that. I wish it was that simple. It's really not that simple, but it's something along those lines anyway. So you said end of November, is that the target launch date? It's looking like end of November. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a hard, hard conversation to have today, but we just, we're pushing so hard to do something that is, I mean, it's easy to say different, but like, I think the, the most important thing is it should be authentic to, to, to me and to us and to, to what we do. And like, if you've seen the stuff that if you, if you liked what we did, the defiant, the cinematic, the weird, the quirky stuff, it'll be that. If you don't like that, then it's probably not for you. <laughs> but what I can guarantee is that we're, yeah, we're going for it because there's no reason not to at this point. You know, the market is where it is and you know, like you've got to try pushing the boundaries of things but also within the boundaries of what people know you for. I think that's the most important thing. Is there anything that we didn't, I, I know you wanted to talk about the creator economy. You touched a little bit on some of how you feel the monetization is maybe perverse or, or not ideal and Web3 can, can change that. Do you have any other thoughts on the creator economy that you wanted to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at different models of how the, the singular creator model is quite strange because it enforces this notion that there is a human and they have all the answers and that the the value should flow through them. And I think where Web3 has done quite well is creating environments in which that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. But it's definitely a hook to hang things on and it definitely helps. So I, I know that my face in front of a video will lend itself to a certain thing, but I'm quite keen to kind of move beyond that to something that's called a, like a meta label. There's a brand called Mischief in New York where they they do these drops that are all sorts of different things, all sorts of different artists. And it's like, it's really cool. Uh, DAOs kind of run a little bit like that way, but um, you should definitely check out metalabel.xyz. There's some really interesting thinking going on about how you can do that. Kind of like a, 
grown up version of a DAO that has a creative or a creative end goal to it. But again, it's not an old idea. It's just kind of powered in a, in a crypto way. That's kind of fun. And I think it was just a lot of, a lot of frothy, crappy companies that grew up through 2021 because during the pandemic, everyone was creating, everyone was making content, everyone was making videos and sharing their, their vision of what was going on. And a lot of that has gone away now because the world has opened up again and it's no longer necessary to just somehow find a way to create from your bedroom. So a lot of those kind of secondary companies that were helping creators manage businesses or build businesses or capture different slices of value, that's all evolving. And then like, there's another big piece of this, which is like, oh, uh, if winter is coming and we're going to hit a recession, like, what does that mean for the AdSense revenue? What does that mean for the brand integration? My brand's going to be nervous about spending money on influencers and creators. I guess what, what I see is that the, the creator economy is really exciting. It is, it is a big sea change. And the way direct-to-consumer now plays in purchasing decisions, it's like, it's just a, it's, it hasn't gone away. And so I, I'm just obsessed with it. Absolutely obsessed with it. Because it, in so many ways, it feels like it's dark. And so in need of kind of, but at the same time, it's also growing up in ways that kind of play more into my expertise. Like YouTube is becoming more like TV. They're really trying to attract TikTok this kind of thing and it's a soap opera you know it's just like you know, what do the algorithm do today like what, what's happening here it's just yeah you know, it's just a fun fun world to be in and it's just if you can find a niche that's got some some juice in it like i think the metaverse does then it's like okay cool we can do something here mark you had a question um more of a statement i just wanted to tell robin that um I really loved everything you did on Defiant. All the quirky metaverse, Unity-based stuff that you did and experimented with was really eye-opening and just, it really got me hooked on it. And I'm really excited to watch you boys trail forward and I'm going to sit back and watch you experiment and see what works and what doesn't. But um, <laughs> I'm really excited and I'm, I can't wait to see what you do going forward. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, you said boys and uh, we're, we're also very aware that the metaverse isn't just for boys. <laughs> we're trying to balance out the team a little bit uh not doing a great job at the moment but yeah definitely trying awesome well robin this is great great to hear about your future plans based af and uh hear a little bit about your experience at the defiant thanks so much for coming to tell us about it today yeah thanks for having me man really really awesome this is great looking forward to seeing the collection drop whenever uh whenever it's ready absolutely All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for coming through and see you again uh, next Friday for another Galaxy Brain. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 Galaxy Brain. To keep up with everything Web3, follow me on Twitter at Nicholas with four leading ends. You can find links to the topics discussed on today's episode in the show notes. Podcast feed links are available at web3galaxybrain.com. Web3 Galaxy Brain airs live most Friday afternoons at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC on Twitter Spaces. I look forward to seeing you there.